South Valley, how are you? Hey, a visit from the past, a blast from the past this morning. How's everybody doing? Man, I am just exhausted. I'm thinking like with this young man down here, if I wasn't talking, I'd fall asleep. But if I see you falling asleep, I'll just have to come down and tap you on the shoulder and ask you, what the heck? All right, you ready? We're in a series on 1 Thessalonians, one of the great books, probably the first book of the entire New Testament that was ever written, so that's got to be cool. I've been listening to Sam and Isaac preach. I got some memorable quotes from them. Um, Isaac said, over the last 20 years, Christians decided that they would rather be cool than faithful. That was a pretty good quote. It's true. That's the problem. He also said, we want Jesus as Savior, but we don't want him as King. How about this one? We want the benefits of a Savior that we don't have to obey, but not a King that tells us what to do. That's a good one. He said, the first Christians weren't persecuted because they believed in Jesus. They were persecuted because their values were in conflict with the dominant culture of that time. And Sam said, I like this one, he said, we like to present the gospel, but we like to round off the rough edges. That was a good quote. And today, it's part of the rough edges for sure. I don't know why they always call me in off the bench when it's about sex. God, what the heck is that about? Geez, I'm like in the American League. I'm the designated hitter. So I'm sitting on the bench waiting, waiting. Come on, <laughs> take a swing. Here I am. 20 years from now, the sermon I'm about to give will probably be illegal and would probably get me put in prison. Seriously. Uh, we're already rapidly moving in that direction, and so it's kind of crazy. But First Thessalonians... With the inspiration of Sam and Isaac, hopefully I'll have the courage to be as blunt as necessary today. Uh, we're in a series called To Wait for His Son, and I forgot to turn this on, although it was turned on for me. Of course, our passage today is chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. This is a very famous Actually, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 is the most famous passage in all of uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians. Of course, they didn't give me that one to talk about. They gave me this one, 1 through 11, and the title is really Holy Together, I believe. Okay, now what makes uh, this such a unique book, and I'll show you this verse, is that Paul actually points to this church as a model of how the church should function, how Christians should live, because you know the situation that they were facing, the persecution, the opposition, uh, but it's a church that is exceptionally worth studying because Paul describes it as a model church for all believers. So that means as we continue to study this book, uh, it's significant especially to us because we need to ask ourselves how we measure up to this example and especially in today's passage. Paul actually turns the corner, he starts a new theme here, and he's writing to this remarkable church, but he's saying what all Christians should always believe, and that is that even though they were exceptional, even though they were tremendous, even though they were, they were great, there's always room for improvement, right? 
He uses the term more and more twice in this short passage, saying, hey, you guys are doing great. You love God. You're doing this. You're doing that. Doing this. Doing that. But I urge you to do more and more. So if you're here today and you've been a Christian for 80 years, it doesn't matter. You can do more. South Valley's a great church, but it can do more. So here's the passage. You ready? Paul said, finally... So he's kind of wrapping it up. It's like the finalies I use in my sermon. It means it's going to go on for another two or three hours, but he's trying to fake you out, kind of a bait and switch thing. Finally, I'm going to close and speak for another hour. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that, you, that as you receive from us, how you what? Ought to live and please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And now he's going to actually describe to us how we can specifically do more and more to please God, all right? So the next part, he says, for you know what instructions we basically already gave you through who? You guys reading this with me or are you just really falling asleep? Yeah, I hear you. I got it. I got that totally. I mean, I like it when the sun goes, stays up for an extra hour in the evening, but you got to pay for it right now. <laughs> Hang in there. And he goes, okay, we gave you instructions through the Lord Jesus. In other words, what we're going to hear today comes directly from the Lord Jesus. You get it? This is a letter that he is actually writing to the church through the Apostle Paul by inspiration, all right? So... You know, don't kill the messenger today. I didn't write this letter. I'm just the mailman. I'm just going to pass it on, share some ideas with you. And he goes, all right, what is this message? He goes, for this is the will of God. Everybody wants to know what the will of God, what's the will of God, what's the will of God? Well, here it is, straight up. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That means to be holy, set apart for a special purpose and use. Not un, it means uncommon. Uh, it means unique. All right? And actually, how do you do that? You do it by abstaining from sexual immorality. This is kind of the heart of this whole passage. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That's one word in the Greek. It's the Greek word pornea. We'll look at that in a minute. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. I like the, one of the definitions uh, Isaac gave for holiness. It means that we behave and live differently than the people of our culture, which is really hard. I, you know, Sam admitted a couple of weeks ago that he's a people pleaser. Well, basically, uh, I was his mentor he was my protege. Okay, so basically, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm way worse than he is. So as you ramp up for a message like this, you're thinking, oh boy, we'll tick off a few people. So control our own bodies in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust. And that's a really key word. It's another one word thing in the Greek, and it's epithemia, which is really an interesting term. And it goes, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who what? Do not know God. 
Now, we noticed in a, when we introduced it, it said brothers. Remember that? Finally then, brothers. So this is written to Christians, and it's contrasting one culture against another, the Christian culture against the dominant culture of that time, which was, as you know from this book, very hostile towards Christianity. So, don't act like the Gentiles. I'll use the word pagan probably because I can't help myself, but I don't mean it pejoratively. I'm not trying to ridicule. That's a title that even non-Christians are adapting to this day. The word heathen, pagan, Gentile, that all means the same thing. So he goes, he goes, for those that do not know God, that no one trespass or wrong his brother in this matter. You know what that means? Everybody talks about when you sexually misbehave in the privacy of your own home or in front of your computer screen or wherever. If you want to do this, do that. Hey, it's not hurting anybody. It's always hurting everybody. It's always hurting other people. There's no question. That's just such nonsense. And then he goes, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. <laughs> I just thought Jesus was going to be my savior. I didn't know he's going to be an avenger. Holy Toledo. I mean, that means one who afflicts a punishment. You know what I mean? If you're the avenger for your family's dishonor, what do you do? You go out there and punish people because they've disgraced you. The Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you now. In other words, this is a super serious passage. This is no joke. It's not to be taken lightly. That's what that simply means. For God has not called us for impurity, but holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God. All right? So, hey, if you disagree with what I have to say today, you take it up with God and see what he has to say in the follow-up sessions that you have with him. Okay? Don't even talk to me after church. Don't send me any emails. No comment cards. Just keep it to yourself. Okay, therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives us what? His weird freaky spirit? <laughs> no, <laughs> who gives us the Holy Spirit. And um, he goes, now concerning brotherly love, we have no need to, to, for anyone to write you. For you yourself have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do what? Do it more and more. There it is. Do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may live properly before outsiders and dependent on no one. So what Paul is saying here, in this chapter he deals with three ma major concepts and he contrasts the concepts, these three concepts, in light of the current prevailing worldview that was the dominant pagan culture of that time with the Christian view. And the three issues are sex, work, and one's outlook on death. Those are the three subjects of this chapter. Now today I don't have time to talk about the work. You can do that in your small group. Next week the study will be on death and how it impacts the believer. But we're gonna focus on S-E-X. And its proper expression, 
and why it's absolutely essential to do it correctly if we want to please God, honor Jesus Christ as King, and glorify God in our bodies on earth, okay? Speaking of sex, the story is told about a young girl talking to her grandmother, and she asked, Grandma, how old are you? The grandma replied, Dear, you shouldn't ask that question. Grown-ups don't like to tell people their age. The next day, the girl asked, Grandma, how much do you weigh? Grandma replied again, honey, you shouldn't ask grown-ups how much they weigh. It's not considered polite. The next day, the girl was back with a smile. She said, Grandma, I know how old you are. You're 62, and I even know your weight. You're 140 pounds. The grandmother was surprised and said, goodness, how do you know all that? The girl said, you left your driver's license on the table, and I read it. The grandmother said, so that's how you found out. And the girl said, yeah, that's right. And I also know and saw on your driver's license that you got an F in sex. <laughs> Unfortunately, here, there's a purpose for that story. Unfortunately, many of us are also getting an F in sex because we don't understand how to express it in a godly way. So in today's passage, Paul teaches us as Christians how to live distinctively in the arena of sexual behavior, not in what Paul calls the passion of lust. That's a scary phrase. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles do. His point is, if you don't know God, it's no surprise to live in whatever sexual expression you choose to. We get that. But if you're a believer, that's not the case. So here we are, three simple points from today's passage. I call it the Christian understanding of sex. First, we have the goodness of sex, and we have the context of sex, and the power of sex. It's a real simple message, uno, dos, tres, because I was in Cuba two weeks ago. <laughs> Cuba's a great place. The brothers there greet you all. Thank you for supporting the um, kind of the emerging church that's taking place there. It's always fun to be in a foreign country where you have an interpreter, you know. You got to, you know, kind of get this thing going, this rhythm thing. Uh, it's pretty tricky, and of course, I sometimes will tell jokes or use illustrations, and they just sit out there like, <laughs> I mean, I, I got carried away once and said, holy Toledo, and the interpreter like, <laughs> he goes, Mama Sita. That was pretty good. So that's my favorite one. Now, now instead of saying holy Toledo, I just go, Mama Sita. He doesn't even have to translate that anymore. <laughs> but I, I'm speaking, and I was trying to describe how most people's lives don't get in trouble because of a blowout. You know, I was using the car thing, and I told him a story, and I actually brought this little nail that was in my front left tire. You know how you, that is? You know, it would hold the air for a week or two. Then a little thing on the dashboard would say, hey, you got a problem with your tire. And I could feel it. And so I'd pull over and fill it up. Got another two weeks, another two weeks, another two weeks. You know what I mean? And finally, uh, psychologists call, call those kind of things tolerables. It's really a good concept. This might just be thrown in extra. And the issue is, what are you tolerating in your life that you could solve? And I bet you if I made, ask you to make a list of 20 things, you could do it in about three minutes. You know what I mean? Things that are annoying, irritating, but fixable. So finally I had the darn thing fixed and they found that this little nail, so I take it to Cuba and I go, this is what happens to people <laughs> over time, the slow leak. And I said, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? I, I said, I got this slow leak and my, my front 
car tire. Everybody busts out laughing after he translates it. And I'm like, that would have been good when I told the joke that wasn't funny. But right now, I'm confused. So I said, what's so funny? And they go, none of us own cars. <laughs> Seriously. And I don't think any of them did. Of the 40 or so pastors that were there, none of them owned cars. It's a testimony to the glory of communism, socialism, and totalitarianism, which I don't see... Uh, disappearing in the near future. Okay, let's talk about the goodness of sex, right? You ready? Good, let's start with that, because that's where you got to start or you don't even understand the prohibitions. Okay, so the goodness of sex. Now, obviously, the reason he's stressing this issue is because in the context of that culture, the lifestyles, attitudes, and values of those that surrounded them were diametrically opposed to God's will for the proper expression of one's sexuality. So, Early Christians, as you've seen in this whole series, have, have been called upon to live dramatically different lives than their pagan neighbor, neighbors, especially in the area of sex and their sexual expression. One ancient source that illustrates these opposite values is one of the earliest Christian writings that we have after the Bible was written. It's called the letter of Methetus to Diognetus. Mathesis to Diognesis. It was written in approximately 130 A.D. And they think that uh, Mathetus was a disciple of John, the beloved, because of the style of writing. It's actually 12 chapters long, very cool stuff. Christian apologetics, Christian behavior, and things like that. It has a very interesting and famous phrase in it that describes Christians of that era as follows. It contains these words, for the Christians are distinguished from other men because they do not destroy their offspring and they have a common table with all but not a common bed with all. Isn't that interesting? That's pretty significant. We're right there within the time frames of uh, the life of the last living apostle. And so you see, the pagans in the Roman Empire didn't share their table with all. That's referring to their money, their generosity. They didn't share it with others. Instead, the pagans held on to their money and thought it was sacred. On the other hand, sex was considered mundane, commonplace, and they gave their sexuality away all over the place with anyone, anywhere. The sexual practices of that day would actually make the average American today, as liberal as they might be, blush. I don't have time to describe that, so I'm going to skip it, but just trust me on this one. But Christians were the exact opposite. Their money was not sacred. They were known for their generosity, but their sexuality was. All right? Followers of Christ cared for and guarded their sexuality and how it was expressed. On the, at the same time, their money was mundane and freely given out all over the place. In a very real sense, the letter to Diognesus was saying, we share our table with all, but not our bed with all, while on the other hand, the pagans share their bed with all and their table with none. How distinct is that? Clearly, the Christians of that time held to a completely different standard of how their sexuality was to be expressed. And even though the pagans laughed at Christians and ridiculed them, 
about their attitude to, towards sex and money. It's very similar today, right? You know, giving is less and less and less in our country, even though we're the wealthiest country on the planet. So we're giving less and having sex with tons more people. Over time, though, the Roman Empire was conquered by Christianity and forever changed. So Paul is writing to these new believers in Jesus, encouraging them not to conform to the perverted values of the dominant society of their day. Instead, they were to celebrate the goodness of sex as a gift from God. What do I mean by celebrating the goodness of sex? I'm not going to spend a lot of time. I've got to wrap this section up in about the next three minutes. Because I think you guys are well-educated on this subject. I've spoken on it, and of course, in the last series called Sex, Marriage, and the Gospel, Isaac spoke at length about sex being a gift from God, a good thing. It was a great message where he verified the point I'm making right here, so I don't want to be redundant. He talked about Proverbs chapter 5, Song of Solomon, and many other verses that actually celebrate the beauty of sexual love in the Bible. I mean, some of it is so erotic, if you translated it directly in the Hebrew, you'd probably get a little uncomfortable. Sex is a part of being made in the image of God. It's a gift from God when it is expressed properly. And here in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul is essentially saying the same thing that Isaac preached about five or six weeks ago. It's just being expressed in a different way. And I want you to notice this, so I'm going to bring this passage back to you. Paul said, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Okay? First thing I want you to notice in this verse is that it doesn't, is what it doesn't say, what Paul doesn't say. Got it? He doesn't say, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sex. Does it say that? No. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that in order to please God and be sanctified in Christ that a Christian is supposed to abstain from sex. Quite the contrary. Instead, he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from what? Sexual immorality, all right? Of course, what Paul is saying here is that sex, when it's improperly expressed, will actually undermine and erode your sanctification because sexual immorality is an assault on holiness and sanctification, right? That's pretty clear. But what isn't as clear is that the opposite is also true. Ready for this? Men are going to love this one. <laughs> what is also not clear is the opposite is true. Sex properly expressed is actually a way that we participate in sanctification and in the sanctification process. How's that for a twist? Everybody's out there, what, what? What did he just say? It means I think it is a means for experiencing sanctification and holiness. It is part of the way we become holy, special, unique, and set apart for God's glory and honor. How we actually understand the goodness of God and express it in marriage, okay? How about that for a dy dynamic view of how God defines and blesses the beauty and wonder of sex? In its proper expression to the glory of God, sex will actually strengthen and reinforce your sanctification. <laughs> That's good stuff right there. Trust me. That's good stuff. Even everybody's out there like, what did he just say? 
Because the gift of sex properly expressed is pleasing to God. And the Bible says God will bless us. This is the will of God. Everybody wants to know what the will of God is. And what is it? Your sanctification. And what does that look like? That you abstain from sexual immorality. Okay? Sex is good, positive. And the proper expression of it contributes to our sanctification. All right? How about... Number two, the context. Here's where it gets kind of exciting. Here's where the rub starts to come. Now, if we understand the goodness of sex and that it's a gift from God, it's designed to bless us, we also need to talk about the only context in which that goodness can be experienced. All right? I may have hinted at it in my previous comments, but let me reinforce and clarify this point. The Bible explicitly teaches that this amazing gift of sex must be manifest and experienced in a specific context. Who thinks they know what that context is? This is an easier question that Sam's, didn't he say give a million Jesus points or something? I used to get better responses for a donut. Back, back when I was the lead teaching pastor here. Yeah, a million Jesus points? The heck is that, Sam? A donut is tangible. <laughs> I can eat that reward, Sam. <laughs> that was really good preaching too, Sam. The fact that Sam was able to explain the gospel about as clearly as it can be explained in five minutes, the gospel of God is pretty remarkable. He did a great job. But marriage... The Bible teaches that sex is a divine gift that only works between a man, one man, one woman, in an exclusive and permanent covenantal relationship called marriage. So in today's passage, if you want to please God, follow the instructions given by Jesus Christ himself, fulfill God's will to live a holy life that is not damaged by the passion of lust and sexual immorality, this passage makes it clear Uh, that you need to obey the advice of God and not of men, all right? My point is this. I'm not the one telling you what you can and cannot do with your sexuality. You can choose to do whatever you want with it. I mean, I'm not God. I'm not, I can't. I wouldn't enforce you to do anything. But I want you to know that God says sex is good, but only when it's expressed in in the proper context of marriage. And here's probably the most succinct passage in the New Testament describing this. It says Hebrews 13, 4, and it uses the word sexual immorality again, epithumia or pornea here. It uh, says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Okay? According to this verse, quite simply, one, marriage must be held in honor by all. Now tell me, is the covenant of marriage being honored by our culture today? hardly, my gosh, it's considered optional. You tell me, when was the last time you saw a movie, a sitcom, a television program that honored marriage and the nuclear family? It doesn't exist. I can't resist the temptation, Sam. I don't watch the Oscars because they're way too offensive to me personally, even though I love movies and I've often said if I wasn't a pastor, I'd like to be a movie critic. So I like movies. But it's just amazing that, um, you know, the whole concept of marriage is just obsolete by the cultural elite. And, man, I can hardly stand, you know, 
listening to a bunch of rich people lecture me on sexual morality and um, all the while patting themselves on the back for all their three hours for all their accomplishments. I actually looked up once all the awards that all these actors and unique people, and even the, I think the nine movies that were nominated were so obscure no one ever even heard of them because they're message movies. That's what they're called, message movies. There was, they're movies with a message. And wasn't it remarkable that one of the few things Jimmy Kimmel said that I thought wasn't hypocritical, he honestly said, we knew all these movies flopped at the box office. I think the Black Panther crushed them all before the weekend was over. I think all of them collectively, the box office revenues were less than that one movie. And he said, but that's okay because we don't make movies for that reason. We make movies to upset Mike Pence. That's an interesting statement. Regardless of what you think of Mike Pence, the point was they make message movies. And now it's become so subcultural, and yet they're considered the cultural elites that everybody's supposed to listen to. I mean, really, Jimmy, you're gonna get up and lecture me about how Hollywood is an example? I think harassment, sexual harassment in the workplace is wrong and all that. I agree with all of that. But my goodness, isn't that stuff scary? When Hollywood's going to set the standard for sexual morality, dang, you know the second coming of Christ has got to be close. (laughs) Okay. All right, Sam, I'm done. Okay, number two. Here's where it gets really exciting. Sexual expression and activity is limited to the marriage bed. That means it is only to occur in the context of a heterosexual monogamous marriage. Number three, extramarital sexual relationships are destructive to our character, culture, and personhood. You ready for my list? That means that fornication, adultery, pornography, prostitution, homosexuality, bigamy, polygamy, premarital sex, incest, bestiality, and the like will hurt and damage us and ultimately lead God to discipline, punish, and judge us for our sins. It's that simple. It's that clear. I could do the benediction right now and send you on your way. (laughs) But trust me, I know that there are some here today who will disagree with me. Think so? I think so in a crowd this big. I know that for some of you, this is controversial and it's just rubbing you the wrong way. I get that. You're here today and you're surprised that anybody with more than a third grade education would get up in public and actually say that sex is only to be expressed in marriage. I get it. I understand your reaction, but let me say this to you. For centuries, all Orthodox Christians, all Roman Catholics, all Protestants, all Jews, all Muslims, all Hindus, and all the major religions of the world for centuries have been unanimous about sex being only expressed in the context of marriage. You know that? This is one of the few things world religions agree on. Everybody, everybody always wants to argue, well, all religions are the same, and we just need to take all the different paths. Okay, well, let's put them all together on this subject. And they all say, in, with consensus, this is wrong. So it may be easy for you to simply say, hey, all my friends think what you're saying is ridiculous. Okay, but I would suggest before you 
go there, you might want to think about what you're putting yourself up against. You're saying that all the accumulative wisdom of all major religions throughout the entire history of the world believing one thing, but you and your friends think it's ridiculous. Okay? That's what our culture is teaching young people today. That's just ridiculous. You know what that's called? It's called cultural arrogance. That's what it's called. It's the myopic assumption that at this infinitely minuscule moment in history, you are claiming that your current cultural understanding of this vast subject is more comprehensive than God and the collective wisdom of billions of people throughout the entire history of mankind. I'm sort of like, awesome. (laughs) If you want to believe that, I just think it's extremely foolish and naive because the Bible said it just ain't so. And all of history argues against it, but now we somehow are more sophisticated than all that history, all those beliefs. So where does that leave us? Well, it means that there are only two alternatives. You can have sex in marriage, or you can be misusing sex. In today's passage, having sex outside of marriage is called sexual immorality. It is used both here and in First Thessalonians, it's First Thessalonians 4, 3 and Hebrews 13, 4. It means there's no sex outside of marriage. God says that sex is good, but the biblical context for sex is marriage. It's not before marriage. It's not outside of marriage. It's not in addition to marriage. Paul is clearly saying that marriage is the only place where sex works. Otherwise, it'll be destructive in the long run. I mean, I think you know that like 40 million people have died from AIDS worldwide in the last 20 years. And I mean, I think there's 78 million people with HIV. I'm just highlighting one thing. Um, I'm not even talking about sexually transmitted diseases. And, stuff. and about 40,000 new infections take place in the United States every year. What's bizarre about that, it kind of reflects the idea because most of it is sexually transmitted. I know all of it isn't. Take it easy. But most of, most of it is. The percentages are staggering, actually. Isn't it remarkable that people are willing to risk their life, their health, their future? (laughs) Because they're, they're caught in the trap of what Paul called the passion of lust. That's the problem. So last but not least, we've talked about the goodness of sex. We've talked about the context of sex. Let's talk about the power of sex. I'm actually doing pretty good here. Well, not as good as I'd like to be, but... I don't worry about the clock too much because they can't fire me here now. (laughs) I don't worry about people asking me to leave town either because I don't live here anymore. Um, But this is the bottom line. This is where the rubber meets the road. This answers the why question related to the exclusivity of sex only in the context of marriage. And this is really significant for everyone today. Okay? Regardless of what you think, you know, I don't agree with you. That's okay. Well, it's not okay, but... The Bible warns us that when we reject God's design for sex and marriage, we often unwittingly turn ourselves over to a power that we cannot control. Jesus said, man, lust is so bad. If you've got a problem with it, you better poke your eye out and cut your hand off. He doesn't literally mean that, but he's, try, he's trying to dramatically highlight, man, 
You better stop it because it's going to overpower you and take control of you. Paul describes this power as the passion of lust that control the Gentiles who do not know God. Epithumia. It's a, epi means over, and thumia, we get our word thermometer and heat. It means desire. Now, sexual desire is a good thing. It's a positive thing. It's designed by God to bond people together and to hold the passion and the love of a man for a woman in the context of marriage so families can be raised and children can be blessed by a father and mother. Those things are all positive. But when it's epithumia, when it's over-desire, when it's desire out of control, when it's desire that takes control of you, uh, it's a very, very bad thing. So epithumia is actually a warning about letting the power of sexual passion take control of your life. It's like Pandora's box, believe me. Once you open that door, once you take that lid off, the power of sex has the tendency to take control of you. So if you choose to ignore the Heavenly Father's warning in a letter like this, the power of sex can uh, take control of you, of, over you. All right? Now, let me illustrate it this morning. Uh, by telling you a story I told two years ago when it first came out, but it bears repeating. When I went to the dentist, I went to the dentist, I'm sitting in the dentist's office wait, in the waiting room, I noticed the cover magazine of the April 11, 2016 publication of Time magazine sitting there, staring at me, and it had one word across the face, porn. That's what it said, porn. I'm like, dang. And go read that article and see what's going on. And the subtitle said, Why Young Men Who Grew Up With Internet Porn Are Becoming Advocates for Turning It Off. That was the subtitle. So now I'm really interested. The entire article was on the devastating consequences of this form of sexual immorality. Of course, there's a lot of others, but this is the most dominant one in our culture and worldwide now, as you know. Here's the quote from inside the article. A growing number of young men are convinced that their sexual responses have been sabotaged because their brains were virtually marinated in porn when they were adolescents. You know, the, the biggest consumers of pornography are young men between 12 and 17. Okay, their generation has consumed explicit content all at an age when their brains were more plastic, more prone to permanent change than in later life. It's called neuroplasticity. You've heard of it probably. These young men feel like unwitting guinea pigs in a, larger, unmonitored, in a largely unmonitored decade-long experiment in sexual conditioning. The results of this experiment, they claim, are literally a downer. You tracking that? So, what does this mean? It means that they are now in their 20s and they are literally sexually dysfunctional. That's what it actually means and it's, it's scientifically verifiable what's happened to them. The pathways of their brain have been hardwired now and programmed for artificial sexual encounters that they've, and now they find themselves unable to actually express true sexual love toward another real person. This isn't a Bible study, this is a scientific study. The concern for the devastating impact of pornography has fueled a movement called Fight the New Drug. That's what it's called, and I like what they're doing. I'd like you to see a video of, uh, about them and what they're working on. 
Maybe. That's pretty interesting, huh? Imagine that God gives us the gift of sexual love as a means of bonding uh, together inseparably with another person in marriage, and we choose instead to experience bondage, not a bond, but bondage with a piece of paper in a magazine or an impersonal image on a screen. How devastating is that? Well, here's how the Bible describes this process the video just spoke of. We probably should watch it a second time. Uh, okay, here it is, Proverbs 5.21. It says, For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. And this is actually a man teaching his son about the beauty of sexual love and marriage. And the father issues this warning kind of in conclusion. He said, uh, For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The word paths here in the Hebrew uh, literally mean wagon marks. It has to do with the ruts or grooves that wagons leave when it passes over and over the same ground again and again. After a while, the rut becomes so deep that it forces the wagon to actually follow the same specific path over and over again. You know what I'm talking about. You've been on roads like that. Well, I believe this passage provides us with an ancient description of what we just saw in that video. It's remarkable, really. It really is. It's so insightful. Let me mention one odd thing as I kind of wrap this up. 21 years ago, I wrote a number of articles in the Gilroy Dispatch because I was on the board of contributors 
opposing pornography because there was an adult bookstore that was wanting to get a permit to move in together. How many old timers remember that, that event? Okay, yeah, there you go. And I spoke down at City Hall and uh, it was a fairly weird experience. Um, I later even appeared on the McNeil Lear Hour on PBS speaking against the access of pornography in the public library. That was sort of my Andy Warhol 15 minutes of fame. <laughs> Here's what I did in my articles. I warned about the addictive and escalating effects of pornography and how it can destroy people's lives, relationships, marriage, family, self-respect, integrity, etc. Now we have scientific and sociological studies that actually prove that. But 21 years ago, the culture certainly wasn't accepting that. They called any, any effort to limit it, hey, censorship. Uh, you, you know, you're violating the First Amendment. You're, you're trying to shove Christian beliefs down everybody's throat. I mean, okay, and here's what happened. All I wanted to do in these articles was point out what I understood biblically to be the harmful re results and consequences of pornography. In response to my concerns... I don't know that I've ever been attacked over any other issue that I used to write on, and they were kind of controversial issues, moral issues, value issues, but numerous people in the community, especially other writers on the board of contributor, contributors for the dispatch, began writing disparaging articles against me and letters to the editor. It's really crazy to watch it happen. They said there was no proof regarding the causal effects of pornography, causal that it was causing bad things to happen. They said it didn't hurt anyone and that it wasn't addictive. They compared me and others to Adolf Hitler and said that we wanted to stop freedom of speech and impose censorship and force our Christian beliefs on the public. And really, it was really ugly stuff. I was actually pretty shocked by, I think there were two, three different authors that wrote against me in the dispatch. Here we are 21 years later, and there's a moral to the story. I'm not trying to act like I'm now self-indicated. Who cares about that? I hadn't even thought of it until I started uh, doing some research about this. But here we are 21 years later. The warnings I talked about have now been verified. They, they verified my original thesis. My personal opposition to pornography did not stem from scientific data. Now, clearly, that's been, you know, established. But it was more about the biblical warnings about the power of sex. All right? That's what we're talking about. I believed that if God had warned people about the dangers of immorality, it wasn't because he wanted to deny them pleasure or take away their freedom or refuse to help them find fulfillment and happiness, but rather those prohibitions would prove to be for their own protection and benefit. I still believe that that's true, and that's why I urge you to heed the warning from today's passage in any area of your life where you're compromising or there's a mutation of some kind in the expression of your sexuality because it always mutates. As you know, you can only imagine, well, we know what's happened in the last 20 years. You can only imagine what's going to happen in the next 20 years. Trust me, it's going to be pretty bizarre. Well, it's already pretty bizarre. I remember 30 years ago when the gay right movement kind of focused on the, on the tagline, live and let live. Remember that? That was big. It's huge. It was the beginning of kind of the unfolding of this whole movement. And I remember telling in sermons, that is just a Trojan horse, my friends. <laughs> and that's proven to be true. 
No worldview is ever tolerant of any other opposing worldview, and I always knew if they can supplant the worldview of Judeo-Christian values, trust me, they're not going to live and let live. And has that proven to be so true? I mean, the worst Christians I ever heard, bigoted, crazy Christians, are not nearly as hostile as our current culture is toward us simply standing up for biblical values. It's become bizarre. It's become irrational, and I think it's become demonic. It's that bad in my mind. Why is that? It's because cultural architects and worldview shapers are overwhelming us with a tidal wave of sexual propaganda that's designed to minimize our awareness of the untold sorrows we will experience if we violate these principles. And in describing these kinds of deceivers, Peter says they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of sin and corruption. For you are a slave to whatever controls you. Let me close with this. When it comes to pornography, I hope you realize this. This should be enough to cause men to stop, and now women, it's becoming more popular with women, but this should stop all of our thinking about this. It should, uh, I'm not, and I'm not saying this is easy either. I think, you know, 90% of men struggle with pornography and the other 10% are lying, okay? So it's time to take away the shame, seriously. It's time to just drop the shame factor here and be honest about this because it's in our homes, it's in our schools, it's in our television, it's on our computer, it's it's in our cell phones, for goodness sake. It's only a button away, so it's there. And people struggle with it. So if you struggle with it, don't let that whole shame thing. AA is right when it says you're only as sick as your secrets. Now, I know on April the 21st, uh, Greg told me there's going to be a special men's breakfast where this is going to be discussed more openly. Go to that meeting. It doesn't mean you're a sexual pervert. It means that you just recognize this is a problem for all men and collective, we're gonna do, collectively we're going to do something about it. I hope you know that pornography fuels anger and violence against women. Duh. That's been known for 21 years. It promotes the sexual exploitation of women and men. It encourages the emotional and physical abuse of men and women. It creates a market for actual prostitution. This is huge. And mediate, what I like to call mediated prostitution, because that's what pornography really is. Don't kid yourself. Gets worse. I'm just giving the soft stuff right now. It is the subordination and the humiliation of women. It supports rape. And this is, might surprise you. It supports human trafficking in a huge way. Who would want to support an industry that exploits these kinds of things? Of course, it supports child pornography, the abuse of children, and it's all about communicating an unhealthy and sick view of sexuality that causes sexual dysfunction, ruins marriages, families, integrity, personal lives. No kidding, this is a big deal. It is an addiction. That's why I love that new uh, title, Fight the new drug, because that's how those chemicals affect your brain. If you're participating in any type of sexual deviation from the biblical norm, you just need to repent, ask God to forgive you, and then by God's grace, you need to begin to reclaim control and responsibility for your life. All right? The last verse here. Next to the last verse. 
The father ends talking to his son, saying, the evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sin hold them fast. For lack of discipline, they will die, led astray by their own great folly. That's a perfect description of our current culture and their sexual attitude. They act like, hey, we're free, we're having a blast, we've blah, blah, blah. No, actually, you're enslaved, you're held by cords, you're being held fast, you can't escape, and it will lead to your destruction. That's what the Bible teaches. Don't ignore it. My last verse, gotta go. Now, Here's my final point. If you're struggling in this area or in any area of your sexual life, don't despair. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Can the worship team come back, Sam? Here's the point. The gospel of the grace of God first confronts us, then redeems us, and ultimately restores and empowers us to be the men and women that Christ wants us to be. Luke uh, 4.18, Jesus is preaching, and he said he came to bring release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. All right? So first we need to be released, then we need to be recovered. And here's an interesting thing. There are two kinds of confession that the Bible tells us will lead to our forgiveness, freedom, clear conscience, guilt, erasing shame and guilt and all that. It's the first one is to God. First uh, John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. You know that verse? And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But there's another one in James five sixteen, not Not talking about the horizontal, but the vertical. I'm sorry. Not talking about the vertical. Just seeing if you're paying attention. And many of you, many of you are gone. So come back for the last 30 seconds. Not only is there a vertical confession, there's also a horizontal one where James said that we as Christians are to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we might be healed. But we don't do that. We hide in the shadows. And these bad things control us and depreciate us and turn us into something God never intended for us to be. All right? Let's stop the mutation of sexual disorder in our own lives at least and help our children, parents, be aware. Wow. Okay, it's devastating. You read the article. That, those, are, those quotes I was giving are just from college students that have finally woken up that this is destructive. Lord, help us in this area. Help us to live godly lives. Help us to realize our sanctification is important to you. And uh, you say it's going to break us, hurt us, and wreck our relationships if we don't get this straightened out. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.